they'll say, well, we can't afford to do that. And we'll say, you can't afford not to do it. You want to keep living? You've got to do these things. You know, it isn't a matter of, oh, it's going to cost too much money. It's what are we going to do? Welcome to Voices of Victors, a podcast that asks thought-provoking questions, cultivates culturally relevant dialogue, and reveals truths about our shared human experiences through discussions with diverse members of the University of Michigan community, ranging from alumni and faculty to students and staff. This podcast is brought to you by the Alumni Association of the University of Michigan. I'm your host, James McCray. I'm a 1997 alum of the University of Michigan. Our theme for season two of Voices of Victors is diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice, from examining the inequities of climate change and paid family leave to discussing authentic allyship, we'll be sharing stories and hearing from experts from the U of M community. On today's episode, we discuss climate and environmental justice. Despite historically contributing the least to climate change, one group remains affected by its consequences, indigenous peoples. For generations, they have simultaneously been at the front lines of climate change impacts and at the forefront of the fight for climate justice. A recent Yale University study revealed that indigenous nations in the U.S. are more exposed to the effects of climate change following a massive loss of their historical lands after centuries of forced migration. As one of the poorest and most marginalized communities, they have fewer resources and resilience to cope with the fallout. But their leadership, knowledge, and innovation have been critical in the efforts to mitigate the impacts of climate change. In April 2022, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released its climate report with an entire chapter devoted to the social aspects of climate mitigation. As the first of its kind to be included in an IPCC assessment, the chapter may reflect a general shift in the world's consideration of climate change as a civil rights issue. Perhaps this is a landmark in the climate justice movement long fought by indigenous people, getting us one step closer to reducing socioeconomic inequalities and dismantling the flawed environmental policies that have long harmed marginalized communities. In this episode of Voices of Victors, we expand the conversation around environmental and climate justice. We highlight the disproportionate environmental burdens on indigenous communities, hearing anecdotes about native people and their land from a tribal leader, and discuss actions you can take to help rectify these impacts and ensure that all people are guaranteed protection from the worst effects of climate change. Let's get started by introducing our first guest. U of M alum and executive director at United Tribes of Michigan, Frank Etiwageshik. With over 40 years of public service, Frank served in tribal elected office for 16 years and has served on numerous state, national, and international boards. As a representative of indigenous peoples at the United Nations, he has continued to build his international reputation as a protector of the environment and a leader in the fight for environmental and climate justice. Welcome, Frank. Thank you, James. You've been involved in issues of climate and environmental justice for several years. Why are these issues important to you as you are representing uh, indigenous communities? You know, I, when I think of environmental justice, there's, there's a number of ways to look at that. And one of the ways, of course, is that, that there are certain populations that are uh, affected more than others, although that, that at least apparently it impinges on their lives directly. Uh, I think everybody's affected by it, but many people aren't aware of the, the full effects that it has. But the you know indigenous peoples are uh, 
usually on the on the front line of of the of the actual physical effects of climate. But one of the reasons that I'm involved so much is also that for Native people, and this is true for, for Native Americans, but also true for indigenous people all over the earth, you know, we're aware of the interconnectedness of the world. And so the populations that are affected are not just human populations, but those populations are of the, the plant life and the birds and the insects and you know, all of, the, all of the other beings with whom we share this world are affected. Those other populations are critical to us. So uh, as people who live closer to the land, for instance, uh, these are, this is a fundamental part of our believing in, in that the, anything that impinges on the web of life affects all of the web of life. So when you're when you're thinking about the effects of climate change around the globe, there it appears in so many ways: floods, droughts, wildfires. Um, and you touched on this a little bit, but what do you feel are some of the most immediate threats to indigenous communities in particular? If you uh, if you look, for instance, to the to the the Alaska natives that live on the coast, um, literally the coast is falling away under their feet or under their houses, their communities are being, you know, that used to be protected by several miles of, of ice along the shore from the storms. Those, that ice is gone and those storm, storms are now coming right up on the shore and washing the shore away. There are villages that literally are being erased from, from dry land and the buildings are all falling in. Uh, in other places, there are people who used to use permafrost to store their food. They would carve like a refrigerator down in the permafrost to be able to keep their foods there. I've been, I've talked with, with people and heard them speak of how they'll go to where the food's been saved and the whole thing's full of water because it's melting. All the food is spoiled. So these are the kind of things that happen. I was in, uh, down in Mexico at the convening of indigenous people for the healing of mother earth we had, uh, I was part of the, the planning team for that. And we had 50 representatives, indigenous representatives from Canada, 50 from the US, 50 from Mexico. And then we had probably an equal number of people that came along that were translators and, and people helping elders and, and uh, support staff and everything that were in the, in the process. But our convening was to talk about, you know, what the issues are and we looked at, you know, the, the, the opening messages were about, we hear the tears of Mother Earth and the cries of Mother Earth. And we need to, we need to be protective. We need to do, our, do what our sacred duties are, is to, is to walk softly on that, on that earth and to not, not leave, leave uh, big impressions, as it says. So, the, but we, we did it around earth, fire, wind, and water. We had elders who spoke in each one of these areas and they, they spoke about fire, how it's our friend, how it helps us, it cooks our food, warms our houses, you know, that it's really a very important thing, but it also is in the bullets and the bombs and it could, wildfires can burn our houses and, and burn, you know, in other words, fire is both a positive and a negative. Everything has this kind of, these, these uh, gifts and threats. And likewise, the same thing for water. 
you know, we have water is, water is life. You have to have water. And yet, what you can drown in the water and the, the floods can wash away your, your homes. And as we talk about now, the rising seas are washing whole villages away. I mean, whole villages, including their cemeteries down in Louisiana, are disappearing. While we speak, they're disappearing right now. And uh, these are ha they're happening into these storms from water. And then you've got wind, of course, and we've seen this in terms of the, the hurricanes. You have to have the wind to blow. You know, the, the, it's our weather. It's a, the wind is an essential part of that whole process by which water comes from the ocean into the sky and then comes down as rain. It's wind is what distributes that. And without that, we, you know, we have to have that. We have to have air to breathe, you know, but so wind is both positive and negative. And of course, when you, the earth itself uh, is, is solid, it's our home, it provides for us, but it can shake and destroy us and volcanoes can, can erupt. And so there are positives and negatives to each of these four elements. And so we organized that meeting around those four elements. And then we wrote a report called The Message of the Living Spirit from the Convening of Indigenous People for the Healing of Mother Earth at the Traditional Territory of the Maya. This document, you know, talks about each of these strengths and weaknesses and calls upon Indigenous peoples to pull together to work on doing our, our sacred duties and to, you know, to help, help and protect and not do harm when we're doing harm to stop doing harm. And then not only called on us, but then called on us to bring that, bring those words out to everybody, to to you know share this uh, with other indigenous peoples, but also with all people, because ultimately all people are indigenous to the earth. But many peoples in their cultures have drifted away from their ties to the earth, to where they actually think that that they live in a world that is separate from the earth. All everything we're doing is directly tied to the earth. And so that's why when you talk about climate justice, we're talking about earth justice. And we're talking about how do we relate with all of the other beings? And, I'm, and for native people, those other beings are not just those beings that are animate, but those beings that we consider the, the, the rocks and the minerals and the, the, the night sky, the stars, all of this world is alive and all is interactive. It's all part of that large web of life and all, they all interact. And so when we're talking about the question of climate, it's climate and the environment. I heard this once, someone said that, and I thought it was a great, a great uh, observation, is that uh, the environment isn't somewhere you go on the weekend. <laughs> the environment is where you live all the time. And that environment that you have, for instance, in your, in your home, you, you have a lot of control over that environment in your home, what you, what you bring in. Do you have plants? You know, are you careful not to have carpets that are going to put chemicals in the air that may harm you and your, harm your health and harm other beings? Are you, how, do you deal with, uh, how, do you, how do you deal with acquisitions of things, for instance? You know, is your whole life revolving around accumulating the, the, the trappings of material wealth? Or are you looking towards energy and looking towards knowledge and looking towards building a world in which everybody is and all things are, are reacting in a, in a positive and negative way? Is your presence on earth 
making the world a better place or is your presence on the earth making it just a little bit worse or a lot worse, for instance? In other words, we have control over that. There's things that we can do. So when I think about environmental justice, social justice, you know, these whole questions of climate change, all of that is tied into this philosophy. So obviously, from everything that you said, that the natural environment is a vital part of not just tribal life, but it seems like everyone's life. Um, can you share a story of the type of cultural impact that you have either seen or experienced because of the effects of climate change? Well, I can give you an example that uh, from my, my tribe, the maple tree is really important to us. It's so important to us that we need not take our tree. And that's the name for it. And, you know, we, the maple, you know, for instance, it's, it's important to people, but it's also important to, to the other animals. I, I watched out my window, the squirrels, this time of year, where the leaves come out while the sap is running, those squirrels run out on that tree and they'll nibble off a little bark on the bottom of one of the limbs. And then they'll just hang there and drink from the tree. And, you know, and then the birds also will come along. And then when it's cold out, you get these little icicles that come down from those spots where they've done that. And the birds come along and take that ice and then eat that ice. And so, you know, the animals are using that, but also people are. And you think, you think about it, before other foods are available, that maple is providing for us. It's really, a, and it's, it's one of the best trees. There are other trees that you can, you know, you can, you can get syrup from, or you can get sugar from. And that's, uh, you know, I mean, like birch, for instance. But the thing is, is that the maple is the primary one for us here. And then that's why it's so important. And yet, uh, I attended the uh, Native Peoples, Native Homelands Climate Change Workshop too. It was helped, sponsored by NASA. And there were a lot of federal agencies involved and tribes from all over the, the country. But one of the things that came there was a representation by the, by the, the EPA. And there were some... Uh, forestry people there. And they showed how at the rate that change was coming, and it has not slowed down since then. And this is now probably 15 years ago now, or, or longer ago, maybe 20, that the maple tree, would, the natural habitat for the maple tree is moving north substantially. And that natural habitat is no longer going to be in northern Michigan here, where our people are. In other words, our tree is moving away from us. And it's going to be moving further and further north. And what does it mean for us as a culture when something so important to us that we've named it our tree is no longer going to live amongst where we are? Because for us, uh, in years before, we would move with the climate change. Okay, we'd move south, we'd move north, wherever things were going, we'd gradually move as the things changed. But today, because of a lot of reasons, we're fixed geopolitically to particular locations. And, uh, and that has to do with treaties. It has to do with, with many things. It has to do with national boundaries, for instance. But what happens is, is that because we are fixed and the climate is not, things are moving away from us. And we're going to have to travel to get to the trees. And so that is going to have an immense effect on our people 
when our tree moves away from us. That's part of our sense of place. That's one thing. Uh, when I was a kid, I grew up in Michigan. I used to camp outside all the time. I, I was 35 before I ever saw a tick. Wow. Today, you can't go out in the woods without finding ticks. And you got to do tick checks and all this stuff. This is part of that change of the world that's happening around us that has to do with climate. And so we're going to have all kinds of things that happen. So that what concerns me from our point of view is this idea about losing our sense of place while we're in our same place. How are we going to make sure that we, that we can deal with this? So part of dealing with it is to name it. The second thing is to figure out ways to help strengthen your sense of place in a changing world and make sure that we pay attention to that. Because when you lose your sense of place, uh, the, the symptoms will be minor dysfunction in yourself that might actually become major dysfunction mentally that could become physical dysfunction. Likewise, in your family and in, in your home, in your community, in your nation, or for instance, the entire human population might suffer from this if things change so much that the world isn't what it was when we were born. And we're seeing changes happening at such an accelerated pace that the world for my grandchildren is going to be significantly different than the world it was that I grew up in. When you talk about your sense of place, some people think about it as being disembodied from who you are. But losing your sense of place is also losing your sense of being. Who is it that you are? And that's so it's tied to place. But that place may not be a, a, a square foot of land. It might not be a, a lot of your house or it might not even be a region. But that sense of place might be what your place is on the earth and what your place is in, as part of that web of life that I've talked about. And so all of those things are important to, to, uh, to protect. And so what we talk about when we're talking about indigenous issues with climate change, that's all of this as a background. When we go into the discussions, for instance, at the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, at the big cops, the Council of the Parties, we just finished COP26 in Glasgow. And, uh, you know, I've, I've attended these now for several years, including I, I started in 2015 in Paris, uh, attending these large international meetings. And so I'm part of the Indigenous Caucus. And part of our job there is to try to talk to people who are strictly, they're, they're mostly money, monetarily oriented. And they're not oriented to the fact that they're dealing with the web of life. In other words, they'll say, well, we can't afford to do that. And we'll say, you can't afford not to do it. You want to keep living? You've got to do these things. You know, it isn't a matter of, oh, it's going to cost too much money. It's what are we going to do? So I've just reread Buckminster Fuller's Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth from 1969. And uh, this is one of the things that he talks about in there is what is the, the fallacy of thinking that it's too expensive to take, to take these steps, which I thought was an interesting point. You know, uh, so my, my teachers are my elders, but they're also elders of all the other places around the earth of people who have, who have taught things and, and, are, and are deep thinkers. Wow. I don't, I don't think I've ever heard it articulated quite so 
clearly of how we are connected to the land and how climate change will not only just impact the land around us, but impact us as human beings. And so thank you for sharing that. That was fascinating. And like I said, I just, I've never heard it put quite so clearly. So changing gears just a little bit here, how do you think that indigenous people can protect the customs and traditions for future generations, despite all that's going on with climate change and the impact that it has? One of the elders once taught me many years ago that you have to spend quite a long time learning how to ask your questions. You may not even know what your questions are. It may take you 10 or 15 years or longer just to know what your questions are. And it may take just as long to be able to understand the answers that you get. And so, you know, what we what we do here is is trying to figure out how to how to ascertain what it is that we ought to be doing and to boil things down as simply as possible and then take those actions. And so, you know, years ago, uh, the uh, someone asked me to what my philosophy of life was. It took me about four or five years to come up with exactly what how I could say it. But you know, my philosophy of life is, is, is to strengthen goodness and discourage evil. And by strengthening goodness, it means that each day you have to decide, are you going to do, what are you going to do? Okay. And one of the elders taught, said it was like Angie Shin Maradeng. It's like the good and the bad. And each day you have to make a decision. Sometimes, many times during that day, you make a decision. Are you going to let that person in in front of you who's an idiot driving in front of you? but you don't want to cause an accident. So you slow down and let them in. That's choosing. That's making a positive choice. Or are you going to pull your car right up there and block them and, and have them, you know, get angry and upset and everything. You know, what is it that you do? You know, how, what kind of actions do you take? Uh, and these kind of actions are, do you add to the strength in the world or do you take away from the strength of the world? You know, to the other things that you can do with your life. So these these are the kind of questions that we're, you know, we're we're taught. And that idea, uh, the same the same elder, when asked why every time he spoke, he said the same thing. Over you now, for years, he was asked by by someone, why is it that you always say this? And he said because I don't think they've got it yet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, you know, the thing is, is that, that we, we do have these choices. And these choices are, are, you know, what do we, do we eat all fast food or do we cook at home? Or when we eat, do we eat foods that are whole foods that are real live foods? Or do we eat things that look like live foods, but are convenient? What do we put in ourselves? What, how do we, what is that, how does our choice between eating a salad or eating a burger, how does that choice affect the world? It depends a lot on where you're eating it, how you're doing it, where the sources of all this are. But you have to think about where thing, the food that you eat comes from and the effect it has on the environment. You have to think about the type of car you drive 
and how far you drive and whether you drive at all. We have to figure out how to, how to take actions in our personal lives that are going to strengthen the world, that are going to help deal with the problems, that are going to help other people, how to make those. And the other part of this teaching is that we can't do it all at once. We can't do everything. So we can't go in and say, well, we're going to fix everything and do this one big thing. It's too big. But if everybody takes a little step every day and makes the world a little bit better place every day, as opposed to a little bit worse, at the end of the day, it's a lot better if everybody's doing that. So part of this is to help the people who like this idea the people whose eyes light up when you talk about this are the children, the kids. Because everybody's talking about climate change and they don't know what's going on. They don't have this. And it seems that everything's out of their control. But this is not. This is something that's in their control that they can do. And they really like the idea that they can contribute. And to me, I've talked with the indigenous youth all over about this issue, about how to do this. And not only that, but all people and all youth, this is something that's really important is what we personally do. Because in the end, the governments are just made up of people. And if the people aren't making the decisions to do this right, no matter what the governments try to do, the people can thwart it. The people have to be on board with this. They have to be the ones driving it. They have to be the ones who say, we need this and want this. So, you know, when we talk about this with, with indigenous um, our indigenous cultures, we are, so, we are generally more close to the natural world in the way we live and how we, uh, what we work with. Uh, I did a training for some uh, natural resource department officers from the state of Michigan. I was the, the host for this and uh, one of the hosts. And they, uh, we had a, a family from one of the tribes get up and it was an elder woman with her adult daughter, with her daughter, with a grandchild that then was pregnant. So we had all these generations on the stage at the same time. And what they did is they got a sheet of paper and they passed it out and it was typed single line on both sides of the paper. And that paper listed everything they used from the woods, everything that they did that they used in the natural environment and how they worked with the cycle of the natural world. And this was what's important. And these are the kind of things that we're trying to do. It's what, what are we going to do in how we live with the world? And so indigenous people are often a lot closer to the earth in that way, these, you know, the, the, those that we call indigenous today. But like I said at the beginning, what's important to remember is that all people are indigenous to the earth. At one point, every single one of our cultures, no matter where we came from, lived close to the earth and lived this same way, taking care of the earth and, and had these same diff differing teachings. But that idea that, we, that we're not separate from the world we live in, but we're part of it. Wow. Well, I feel like we've, we've covered so much today. And by we, I mean you have covered so much today. <laughs> um, what do you think one of the most important thing our listeners can take away from this? Um, you've shared, you know, some of the personal choices we can make, but what do, what do you think immediate action, like what is, what is that most important thing we can do or take away? Well, one is to take personal action and, and realize what you can do, what I was just talking about. That, that's an important part of this. 
but the other one is to uh, is to hold our 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 politicians uh, to a standard about what are they going to do about stuff, and we do that to some extent, but not not often enough. And I think that we need to actually let let the people who are in these de decision making positions know our concerns and know that to get our vote, they're going to have to take action. When we look at the, the long term, you know, we take actions that we hope make the world a better place. And we don't, we're not always perfect. We make mistakes. And, you know, one of, one of the things that I learned a while long time ago is that if you're doing something that's harmful, stop. If it's caused harm, clean it up, fix it. And then move forward, not causing harm. Now that's the summation of everything we have to do about environment. And yet it's, you know, it gets way complex when you start trying to put all that into, into place. You know, we need to, we need to do these things, but what do we take? What, what's the, uh, you know, what are we trying to do? Uh, probably the highest thing that we can, that we can, can achieve is, you know, part summed up in this teaching that there's, we we're taught to consider the consequences of our actions through a time period long enough to encompass seven generations. But it's like driving down the road at night with your headlights shining ahead of you and every hundred yards you go down the road, your headlights go a hundred yards further down the road still. In other words, it's a, it's a, it's a buffer. It's a time ahead of time. Not one you're ever going to get to, but it's this, you think about the consequences of your actions for that long. And so, but the other part of that is that each of us, all of us, uh, you know, speaking today and all those who are listening, each of us is somebody's seventh generation. What did those ancestors do that caused us to be living where we are, caused us to be following the professions we are, set the things in motion about where we might be, which continent we're living on, all of these different things. What did they do? And what things did they, how are we benefiting from things that they did? And that help makes us up. But then we also think about what are we going to be doing for those seven generations down the road? Seven generations from now, who are they going to be looking at, at us? Are they going to say, boy, they really missed the boat. They didn't do the things they should have. Or are they going to be able to look and say they did? So for us, the best thing that we can figure out how to do, I think, is for us to be considered good ancestors. Well, Frank, thank you so much for uh, this enlightening conversation. And thank you for sharing your wisdom and knowledge with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, James. The Give Like a Victor Fund helps current and future alumni leverage the power of the Michigan Network. Every gift strengthens our existing programming and helps develop new, relevant ways to meet the highest needs of our alumni, whether it's through professional support or social engagement. Make a gift today by visiting alumni.umich.edu forward slash GLAV giving. In addition to Frank Edowagashik, 
We also spoke with U of M alum Juan Hong Chung, the Climate Justice Director for the Michigan Environmental Justice Coalition, or MEJC, a statewide coalition of grassroots and community organizations that advocate for just environmental policies at the local, state, and federal levels. Juan discusses how reducing inequalities experienced by marginalized groups improves the effectiveness of climate change mitigation policies. So the new IPCC report just came out with a chapter devoted to the social aspects of climate mitigation. What were your key takeaways from that? Yeah, so that was really it, it was really good to see that the IPCC is trying to center more the social aspect of climate change, which is very relevant to climate justice. We we know this, and I, I guess I want to express a, a little bit of frustration in the sense that like this is not new. Uh, I am glad that the IPCC is reporting that you know people of color, uh, low-income communities, and other historically marginalized groups are affected by climate change in many more ways than uh, other groups. And this is something that scholars in um, many social sciences have identified for a long time. One of my concerns with the latest IPCC report is that it relies too heavily on uh, technology solutions. And a lot of these technologies are new and emergent. And they include things like geoengineering, they include things like carbon capture and storage, they include things like hydrogen technologies. Um, these technologies have not been proven at a large scale. And I am concerned that uh, policymakers feel tempted to uh, invest a lot of money in these technologies while ignoring um, community-based solutions. Uh, one of my other concerns, too, is that a lot of these technologies actually might perpetuate a lot of the harms that the fossil fuel industry currently places on indigenous communities and communities of color. Um, for example, a lot of carbon capture and storage projects are actually tied to um, fossil fuel projects. And the reason is that um, the logic behind that technology is that you can continue burning fossil fuels, but you can capture the emissions and then sequester them underground. Unfortunately, a lot of the places selected for carbon capture and storage are uh, indigenous communities, are low-income communities. So they will burn the brunt of this uh, new infrastructure, um, of the continued pollution as well, because Carbon capture and storage will car will capture carbon emissions, but will not capture the rest of the other um, toxins that come out of the air in these plants. So this is a big concern for us as an advocacy organization, knowing that a lot of these techno fixes will have negative impacts on our community. So can you explain a little more to us about how? Reducing inequalities experienced by marginalized populations improves the effectiveness of climate change mitigation policies? That is a question of um, equity in policy. We know that when uh, policymakers, when elected officials design policies, they don't always have uh, the intended outcomes. And we've seen examples like that, for example, with like redlining and gentrification. 
Um, these are policies that unfortunately have, have harmed people of color, have harmed low-income communities. And if government is able to craft policies that are actually rooted in what communities have been asking for, community-centered solutions, that is going to create a lot more buying from these communities. It's going to create also um, outcomes where, where we will see um, effective redistribution of wealth, where we will see effective redistribution of benefits. There's a lot more than than just thinking about climate from a technical perspective that needs to include these equity considerations and, and this um, very large scholarship on equity and justice. What are some specific ways you think we can engage with marginalized populations on climate mitigation strategies to design a more effective and equitable climate policies? Yes, I, I can tell you a little bit more, maybe a concrete example to make it more tangible. So when I was at, uh, at U of M at the School of Environment and Sustainability, I got a chance to actually go to COP25 as a uh, student delegate. So I was able to see, you know, this climate negotiations, re uh, read and learn about the policy. I was not surprised to see that a lot of people involved were, you know, people in government, policymakers, policy experts. Um, unfortunately, I was surprised to see that industry has also a heavy influence. They are another stakeholder, but they have a lot more power than uh, low-income communities and communities of color who were completely underrepresented at the negotiations. And that I would say would be one of just one simple first step is to include, to always, always include these communities who are historically ignored. I think there is a very strong power dynamic in that industry has a lot of money, a lot of influence, a lot of power. So they get to be at the decision making table where, um, local communities, indigenous tribes, communities of color don't always have the capacity uh, to engage and government needs to come in and provide that bridge to make sure that those communities are represented and that they're represented not in a way that tokenizes them where they can say like, oh, you know, they were here, so we're good. Like that's all we need to do. But actually in a very, um, meaningful and an effective way to engage um, our communities and that would be really by ensuring that our voice is actually um, respected i think that often people don't value uh, lived experience and local knowledge i think that um, again we rely on this technical expertise and i think for me personally, as someone who has gained that technical expertise from a university degree from U of M, um, but also having some of that like local and lived experience of being a person of color, um, there is definitely, they can complement each other. They don't have to oppose each other. And it, it is very clear to me that definitely the technical experience gets, um, 
gets a lot more priority than the local and lived experience. So one more question for you. How can we collectively uplift the knowledge and lived experiences of grassroots communities, specifically those of indigenous communities, to contribute to the long-term equitable solutions? You know, wherever we are, there is a way for us to like find that connection to the local environment. I think that currently, um, because we, in the United States, like we live in this extractive economy based on fossil fuels, and and this seems to be kind of like the the mainstream idea in which society has been organized. But there are many many places within our neighborhoods, within our communities, where people are trying new things. They're trying to find new ways to organize. And I can tell you, for example, like here in Detroit, there are many people um, organizing around urban farming, um, organizing around different ways to support their communities that doesn't necessarily fit with the traditional model of, of an extractive economy. So I would encourage everyone to try to find those like places that are like um, basically building the new and and support those efforts. And at the same time, I would say to find um, advocacy groups like the group where I work for, um, where we not only try to elevate those new visions um, for a, a more just future, but also where we fight for uh, systems change, where we're trying to fight um, for the inclusion of, you know, uh, race conscious policies that acknowledge historical harms to our communities so that future policies don't have the same effect that they had before, you know, that they don't have these side effects like uh, redlining or gentrification. Well, Juan, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you to our guests, Frank Etowageshik and Juan Hong Chong, and to you, our listeners. University of Michigan alumni are making a difference all over the world, and we want to continue telling their stories. Are you a member of the Alumni Association? If you haven't already, we invite you to join us today. Visit our website to stay connected at alumni.umich.edu. Also, don't forget to give this podcast a rating or review and hit the follow button so you don't miss the next episode. Until next time, go blue.